Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Thank you so much for everyone coming out here. I know you've had a really long day, so it really is like really cool that you're still here and engaged. Eric, I, I gave you guys a, a, a quick taste earlier. Eric and I go way back, actually to, to technically to college. We, we met, I think, once uh, when we were both attending the University of Michigan, living in Ann Arbor. And then we actually became friends in what, 2012? Yeah. So we've been friends since 2012. It was really friends at first sight. <laughs> Yeah. I would say Jacob became one of my best friends in Detroit. I think I was one of his top 50 friends in Detroit. So you guys are so lucky to get to hang out with him because it's his job to hang out with you. It's true. Yeah, I get paid for it. So That's the only reason why I'm here. So he'll hang out with me because he's too busy outside of his job. Eric was like, Eric's in town and he was like, he's like, dude, can I see you? And I'm like, actually, it's training camp. So he's like, well, could I come talk at training? That's actually a true story. First and foremost, I was just hoping that you we could kick things off. I, I kind of gave a, a brief preview as, as kind of the highest level. So Eric currently is working as an investor, uh, a venture capital investor for uh, a fund called Village Global. So we'll get into some details talking about what even that means and what uh, he's working on now. But again, part of the reason that we were particularly excited to share Eric's story with you guys is because he comes from an extremely scrappy startup background. And when I say extremely scrappy, I mean about as scrappy as you can humanly imagine. Uh, so <laughs> I guess just first and foremost, I was hoping that you could kind of speak to the foundation piece. So like how did what even initially inspired you to start your own thing? Did you ever have a, a normal job? No. <laughs> have you ever had a boss? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Proctor. But oh, right. yeah, so I graduated University of Michigan and I was, you know, I was actually thinking of doing Teach for America. I got into Teach for America and I was going to go to the Bronx and teach special ed, like special ed first grade or something. And I was in this uh, entrepreneurship club called Empowered at University of Michigan. And there was a startup weekend. Has anyone here been to a startup weekend event? And we had, I had gotten into freestyle rap as a, as a hobby, spoken word poetry, and we had started chat roulette. Does anyone here know what chat roulette is? The, le the, the legend continues. And we had started a, a project, a startup weekend called Rap Roulette. And it won. It like won so easily that Bizdom offered us, Bizdom was an accelerator back in the day, offered us on the spot. It was sort of like when Big Sean pitched Kanye West. It was, ex it was exactly like that. And Bizdom gave us 25K, I guess, investment. And that's what led us to come to Detroit. And I never, uh, I never taught special ed in the Bronx. So, excuse me. So, Bizdom was a, a sister program to the Detroit Venture Partners program that some of you may have heard reference. So that's the venture capital arm of the the Quicken Loans uh, family of companies. Bizdom was an earlier stage startup accelerator, is what Eric's referencing. So let's dive into talking about Wrapped FM a little bit. So. There's a few things that I wanted to highlight just because I think it really is indicative of, of what tenacity really can look like in a startup. So first of all, literally, they were looking to bring 
rap battling online. It was hilarious and amazing. Two windows, like a chat roulette scenario, with an audience. You could give props in real time. There was a winner declared that you'd each hear the same beat. It was randomized beats. It was it was really, really phenomenal. Kind of what talk through kind of how you thought about the the real early stage of that and and what kind of when you initially launched it, what was you how were you thinking about it? Well first I just want to say that it might have been Queens, which was my offer in special ed in New York City. <laughs> I can't remember exactly. Wrapped FM, so you described what the product was. We initially, you know, we'd won that startup weekend. And gotten that grant. And the next couple of days later, we were sitting in DVP and Ludlow's office. And they asked us for a P&L and a deck. And we were like, what the fuck is a deck and a P&L? <laughs> and that's just a sort of metaphor to say that we just sort of dove headfirst into, into startup world. It was me and my co-founder. He was about uh, in his mid-40s. I sort of knew nothing about him otherwise. And we, uh, we lived together for a bit. We... <laughs> We brought on some interns who also uh, lived with us for a bit. How many interns were with you that summer? Four. Eric literally had four interns sleeping on his floor for an entire summer. It was very educational for all, everybody everybody involved. And we got free space. And that, that's really great about Detroit is how, um, how easy it is to get started. I was paying like 200 bucks a month for like huge loft. Madison building was free. So our burn was super low. And yeah, we were trying to figure out how to create sort of like, well, we, we kept, we pivoted a bunch, but Twitch for music or a new like American online on the internet. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> American Idol on the internet. America online. And yeah, it's a group social product. Two, two really quick things that, that I'd like to highlight. So first and foremost, the project ultimately didn't end up working out. They built a really strong community, kind of ultimately uh, made the investment in the community, what Eric was describing. And I believe the challenge that you guys ultimately ran into was like scalability slash like revenue challenges. Is that like you're telling my story way better than I am? (laughs) What what would you describe as as the biggest takeaway in terms of lesson learned from the Wrapped FM experience for you? Don't have stupid fucking ideas. (laughs) Wrapped FM was a dumbass idea. (laughs) I mean, who would do that with their life? (laughs) Three years? Are you kidding me? It was so stupid. I'm just kidding. I mean, I hear a few lessons. You know, one is separate is it's sometimes it's helpful to separate hobbies from careers. You know, not every passion project has to be, you're taking notes, man. I appreciate that. <laughs> Good ass insight, man. Yeah. Separate passion from, from career. I remember I was, you know, talking to an investor and he was like, rap's just not that big. Hip hop's just not, not, not that, you know, there's, or at least, you know, rap's not that big, and then freestyle, or rap battle's not that big, and then freestyle, it's sort of like a niche within a niche within a niche that isn't big enough in the first place to be a venture backable business, which was another lesson is that not every business has to be a venture backable business. So, you know, if you want to be super aligned with, with your investors. But yeah, I think it didn't work for a number of reasons. One is this was like 2011, 2012 before sort of Meerkat, Periscope, before even Twitch took off. So before technology was there, the market wasn't big enough. And so I think we picked a niche product. We had raised some, some venture funding. We were here for about three years and then moved to San Francisco for 500 startups and ultimately realized my interest was more in building communities. It was more in, you know, I threw ciphers here in Detroit with you. It was more in sort of getting people to freestyle uh, and get, get outside their comfort zone and less in terms of like signing the next Katy Perry or something. And so I haven't, I, I left the music industry and haven't touched it since. Very interesting. One more thing just quickly to highlight because I think it speaks to the tenacity piece. 
when Eric started, and I'd love you to elaborate quickly, and then we can move on. I don't, I don't mean to dwell on just rap. Oh, I love rap. <laughs> Lots of I never talk about rap FM. I, this is this is the deep cuts, folks. No, <laughs> no, you can't find another yeah, interview no on, on the internet yeah. of Eric talking about rap FM. I what what really inspired me that continues to be something that inspires me was the fact that when you when you initially ran into the obstacles around like revenue that you got extraordinarily creative with revenue <laughs> models. Uh, and I mean that in a, in a really, like, I, I really respect what you guys did. So as an example, Eric worked out a deal with Quicken Loans, huge, huge company, <laughs> huge corporation, to be do, using freestyle rap as part of their official training for employees and was get, and got paid. So, like, I got paid once to go <laughs> with a group of people. I got paid 100 bucks. Yeah. Yeah, we got paid for like an hour of my time to go. <laughs> I didn't tell you that that part. This is not what I do professionally. So. so, but just in general, like the, could you speak quickly to kind of, um, I, I imagine you don't have regrets around no, kind was, of how you, how you approach that. Like, did you, what did you take away kind of from that yeah. piece of the puzzle where you were kind of navigating and trying to get creative with, with revenue? Well, a few things. One is that working at a lifestyle, quote unquote lifestyle business, business that isn't going to scale to be an enormous business can be, can be a lot of fun and you can make a lot of money doing it. You know, if you own 100% of a company that sells for $30 million, that's the same thing as owning, you know, 10% of a company that sells for 300 million. Like it's people really focus too much on, on things that could be, you know, venture back or not. And that was clearly a, not a technology business, but we made way more money than we ever did with, with Rapt FM. And we actually, we employed Detroit rappers like Doc Ellingsworth and paid them more than they made, you know, doing normal hip hop stuff. Really, it started out of, Chalkfly, which was our, our friend's business, we taught them how to freestyle to use our platform. And then companies said, hey, we should pay you for this. And yeah, that was that was a, a lot of fun. It sort of led me the idea of like early on, especially if you're not finding product market fit, don't be scared to pivot or sort of think of new ideas, new ways to make money. And we did Quicken Loans. We did the Cleveland Cavaliers. We did Fathead, Title Source. We survived for like two years off of that revenue, you know, like having over 10 people in Detroit. And that, that was amazing. But at some point, we realized, like, that's not what we're going to do forever. Although I, I think it's a cool way for artists to make money. So 100%. And could we could have kept doing it, too. It's yeah. just, you know, quite frankly, your priorities. Were different. <laughs> you we, joined we all had for different, one. Different Max aspects. joined for one. Highest paying job oh, yeah. <laughs> 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 ever had. Highest paying job he's ever had. That's amazing. I, well, I could literally do this for the whole time, but we should probably move on because you've done a lot of things since. So following Wrapped FM, ultimately, Eric did move to... That was in San Francisco, the property time? Uh, yes. Eric ultimately moved to San Francisco to work on a business called Product Hunt that is still around and, and doing big things. At the time, it was like the hottest uh, startup. It's like hard to to like explain just how like hot Product Hunt was at the time that Eric went to do that. Uh, and you were employee number one. Is that yes. correct? So my first question is, what is a startup hostel? <laughs> I appreciate it. Well, first, let me go back to Rap Defend for a second. Because that was a, you know, when we did, when we took down Rap Defend, a lot of people, a lot of people, a few people were very upset. And that's just all to say that, you know, it was a failure of a business, but it was, a, we were really proud of it as a, as a community. And it is my goal to revive Rapt FM at some point. And so I'm going to throw a hip hop hackathon where we're going to build Rapt FM and make a mixtape in a weekend at some point in the next year. So everyone's invited who's listening to this or who's going to be here. And VFA is sponsoring. Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> 
So product hunt, well, it was, it was so interesting to go like within, you know, even before product hunt, I felt like a failure at Raptor Pen for quite some time because the business made no revenue nor had any, any evidence of success. And, <laughs> and I, uh, <laughs> this really weighed on me because I was known as the Raptor FM guy and that was my identity. And when I left it, uh, you know, I thought when, when I announced that I was shutting it down, I thought that people were going to see me as, you know, a failed entrepreneur or lesser. And the reality is that no one cared. No one gave a shit. <laughs> or actually, people were very supportive of, of what I built. And so I think it's underrated. We'll get to it later, but for pe- young people to start companies, because there's, assuming you don't have debts and things like that, there's not much social risk. In fact, there's a lot of pride or respect for people who start things. And even if they fail miraculous, miraculously, do you want to add to that? Just to add on to that, so uh, VFA is my fifth job. I'm 29 years old. That includes starting my own business that I ran for three years, employed eight people, super proud of it. Didn't work out. Uh, Ended up walking away from the business. I was at a venture-backed startup, raised like $5 million, ultimately didn't work out. I was at another company that's still crushing it. It was a terrible personal fit, left. And then I was at another startup with Max that also didn't work out. Was a terrible At, personal fit, Max's company. <laughs> Max was the terrible personal fit. Just kidding. I no, but but in all seriousness, just to add on to what Eric was saying, I when my business didn't work out, it was deeply tied to my personal sense of identity, and it was extraordinarily embarrassing. Much the same way that like if any of you have broken up with a significant other, that like feeling of it's like part of your identity, and it gets like kind of ripped away, and then everyone knows that you know it's like like really embarrassing. Literally, just talking about it just gave me shivers. But the the point is though that like once you dive into your career and start having those experiences, what now that I have more perspective and have gone through it before, first of all, it's way less scary. So failing, experiencing failure, it's like stand up comedians always say that the first time you bomb is like the most influential thing in your career it's like super important to bomb as a comedian because otherwise you don't you know there's this like scary thing that you don't know what it's like so i actually think failing as an entrepreneur is super important the other thing is that once you kind of have that perspective of having worked for a few different companies you start to kind of and i'm interested if you feel the same way i'm at a point now where i kind of have this like elevated sense of self where my sense of identity is not directly tied to what i'm currently like to, I, I can separate the current projects that I'm working on from me in a way that is so much more healthy than my old mindset. I mean, I'm not sure if you can really do that without experiencing it. <laughs> so, like, I can say those words, but I yeah. really appreciate you bringing that up because that's like that's been huge for me. I I would if I could go back and change anything, I wouldn't change a single thing about any of the businesses that I work for, except. I really wish that Max hadn't purchased that zombie shark backpack. It's really off-putting. But other than that, totally. I would have started even more things. I think as, as a young person, especially if you're not in sort of financial debt, like the cost is so low and, and you learn so much. I would have killed rap sooner, started the next thing. And I think I was scared to, scared to let it go because of what that would, that would say about me. Do you know Delane? Yeah, he's a young entrepreneur from Detroit. Now, now he's in Los Angeles. He's like 26 years old, just raised like 15 million dollars, focusing on competitive video gaming. Yeah, and in, in the he worked with Raptor FM a little bit. In this, in the three years I knew him, he started like 10 different companies. Like every three months, it was a new thing, and people just you're only known for like one or two things, anyways, and people forget all the all the failures. That that's true of any industry. Just to put it out there, that's true for artists. I know successful musicians. They made. At one point, one of them made a hundred. He made a song every day 
one of them hit big and now he's an, an overnight success. You know, it's like it, the most famous artists of, of all time are the ones that were prolific, that made a lot of content and you only remember the successes. That's true of, of entrepreneurs, like more than anything. It's the, it's, it's who, it's not that you get it right the first time. It's that you don't stop trying when it doesn't, it's, it's statistically likely that a given business is not going to work out. The people that are successful are the ones that are tenacious enough to keep to keep working on it, even if even when they fail. Yeah, and you know, going back to Product Hunt for a second, it was interesting that sort of I joined Product Hunt. No one really said anything about Raptifem anymore. It's just sort of been erased from, and so few I could just you know move, move on anew. And Product Except for when he comes to Detroit, and then <laughs> for, no, no, oh, and it, I love Raptifem. Um, uh, I'm bringing it back, but it was just so interesting with Product Hunt. It sort of blew up right away. And it was so interesting within a few months to go from something that had zero traction to something that was blowing up. And I was, I was the same person. Like I hadn't changed at all. And yet my life had started to change very quickly. And it showed me a couple things. One, that environment really matters. An environment could be physical place, but it could also be just like people you're around and, and company. And then two is like when something is working, it's, it's, re- it's, it's, it's really working and it's not like, there's a lot of luck to it. And sometimes it's taking enough shots on goal that you can catch that sort of lightning in a bottle if, if you're building something consumer social as we were. Something that I, I've, I've noticed like a consistent trend talking to folks during the match process has been kind of this, uh, which is super understandable. And I remember going through that type of anxiety, but like not knowing if you want to join a company that's really early stage or a company that's growing or, or what the case may be. Um, I'd be curious to hear your take. Uh, in my personal experience, I had the experience of starting something from scratch. I had the experience of joining, you know, a company that had just raised capital. And then when those experiences didn't work out, the way where my head was at was like, man, I really want to experience what it's like to be at a growth stage startup. Yeah. Do you feel like you having that kind of well-rounded balance? Do you do you think about it that way? Like I kind of think of it as like tools in my belt. Like I've gotten yeah. to experience each stage. Do you yeah. think about it that way? I don't, but that's cool. <laughs> that's why I'm asking. It's really, I, I just more like what was I interested in and who was I interested in working with and when I joined Product Hunt it was sort of a side project it was just Ryan and he had just gotten commitments for, for capital but before that I'd been volunteering I, I thought I was really inspired by him as a person that I thought I could learn from I thought the product itself was really interesting and at the very least it would expose me to a bunch of other opportunities and I think that's what sort of Starting a company in sort of an interesting space or with interesting people, what it, it's like on a it's a risk in that it, it is high upside, but it's also the risk is mitigated in some sense where you're working with really awesome people, and if this thing doesn't work out, the next thing will. And so I, I try to seek out those opportunities that like have high upside if they work, especially when you're young. High upside if they work out, but have enough sort of surface area where they're touching interesting people and interesting things that I can just tack on something else. I want to dive into that farther. Will you explain quickly what Product Hunt does? Sure. Product Hunt is sort of like a Yelp for products. It's a uh, content site to discover the latest and greatest uh, mobile apps that launch every day and uh, see reviews and, and comments about them. Cool. Just to dive a bit deeper into what you just said, another thing that a lot of fellows are thinking about as they choose their opportunity is like, what what am I looking to get out of this experience? And I think a lot of folks get caught up in is this the biggest, next, greatest thing as opposed to maybe what can I pull out of this experience? Yeah. Just to like elaborate on what you were saying, there's lots of things that you could pull out of an experience working at a startup, right? There's, right. there's you know, learning what it takes to scale a business. There's building your own personal network. 
Yeah. Can you just like speak a little bit more about what are the types of things? So ultimately, you, you didn't stay at Product Hunt. Right. Can you speak to how much value you took away from yeah. that experience that, or, or kind of even collectively? Like, yeah. kind of, so now fast forward, you've done wrapped, you've done product hunt at this point, neither have worked right. out. What, what have you pulled away at this point? Yeah, there's career? two things. One is my co-founder and partner, Ben Kasnoka at Village Global, wrote this book called The Alliance, where he, he has this concept called the tour of duty, which is uh, how he encourages people to think about their, their careers nowadays. It's not just, Hey, I'm going to work here for 30 years, but I'm going to, you know, I'm going to chat with my boss or, or whoever and scope out a year, two years, three years, like what needs to be true for me to get a lot out of this experience and to work collaboratively with, with the company to, to learn as much as possible. And then in terms of what to learn, there's one quote that goes something along the lines of, you want to do things that seem hard to other people, but easy to you, for you. And I think, you know, with wrapped, you know, we didn't scale, but I was sort of effortlessly building community or buzz or hype around it. And that applied, that didn't lead to success for app, but that led to success in other things, which is, you know, product, like building community around product hunt. Or from there, I got really into investing. And so I th- going back to your medic, your broader question of tools and tools, I just said, how can I follow things that seem hard to other people, but easy for me? And yeah, bring me to, to people I want to work with. And so with wrapped, so we met with hundreds of investors. They all said no. And like, not even like maybe it was just no. And what I did and I, what I'm really proud of myself for doing is I said, Oh, well, do you want to fund this other company that's in our batch that's crushing it? And they said yes. And I, I, I could have easily said, like, I could have easily not done that. There's which company? What do you mean? Like Shippo. It was a company in my 500 Starbucks batch, but basically I became a node for some of these investors where I was just trying to add value to them, even if I got nothing in return, at least you know, in the beginning. And I was really interested in helping other people raise money. And so I, I kept that up during product hunt. We would see all these products every day and I would introduce startups to investors. I would get a sense of which types of products, which different investors liked, which spaces they liked. And then over time, I first started investing and this isn't advised <laughs> my, my own salary into, into some of these companies and that quickly ran, ran out. And then some of these investors gave me money to invest on their behalf, which is known as a scout program. It became a scout for some of these firms, which is they empowered me with capital to invest. I would keep a little bit of the, of the equity or, or carry and the rest would go back to them. And fast forward, I started sort of fund a scout fund of my own. So. The, the principle I took away from it, which I've tried to keep and encourage others is sort of adding value, even if you don't see how value will come back to you in the short term and be pretty like scientific about how to do that. You were a whole step ahead of me. I was going to, so I was going to highlight the fact that Eric is one of the best people connectors that I know. And I think just kind of broadening the advice that you just gave, just as like a very general rule of thumb, when you're thinking about networking, I think a lot of people, especially when you don't have a lot of experience in the professional world. When you think about networking, you think of like this like stodgy room and you're wearing a name tag and you go shake someone's hand, you give them a business card. Certainly, in my experience, I think Eric and I take a very similar approach to networking and have both figured out ways to be very effective with it. But I think what what Eric is getting at, just to reiterate, is it's all about how do I create value for this other person. So it's never about me, how do, what can this person... It it might be that this person specifically can help me in some way, but you're never leading with asking somebody for something if you haven't provided them with value. Is that yeah. safe? 
way totally. to describe that. Yeah. And I think like more broadly, not just with investing, but like yeah, and I, connecting it, people. Totally. I think there's a few things to unpack. So one is just sort of on the most basic level. I think the most successful connectors or community builders are really people who internalize the spirit of abundance, who just want other people to, to be successful. They, they really care about other people and it's just sort of who they not, like other people succeeding doesn't take anything away from them. Like they, them getting the opportunity that you also applied for, you're super happy for them or you'll connect them even when you get rejected or even when you're applying, you'll also connect them uh, even if that, that makes it a little bit worse for you in the short term. So super long term oriented and, and abundance oriented. And then I think there's something along the line, like, yeah, you want to think about how you can add value to people. And I think if you think about it on a scientific level, you soon realize that you can't really add that much value to a lot of people without building or having some sort of asset. Like, so for startups, for example, startups care about what do they care about? They care about distribution, like getting customers, traffic. They care about recruiting, hiring people. They care about raising money. They care about a few other things, but those are some of the, the biggest ways. And as a one person, it's hard to help people do any of those things. And so I've sought in my career to try to build tools, communities, products that help people solve their biggest problems. And why products don't work so well and open the doors to meet so many people was because it helped people get traffic at scale. And so every day I was helping people get, get traffic at scale. Then I built this community called OnDeck, which is for, for people who are looking to do their next thing, whether they're looking to start a company or join a company. And that helped people hire, that helped people find co-founders. Then I started a fund that helped people get money. So I've, I've always sought to build out communities and, and even institutions that sort of add value to, to people's lives. To quickly add to that, what are some ways that uh, when you are first starting your career, you don't have that asset yeah. class that you've built? One that jumps to mind for me is like connecting connecting people. Doug Song is the founder of a company called Duo Security. It's the first company valued at a billion dollars out of Michigan. First startup, quote, valued at a billion dollars in Michigan just recently. Amazing guy that will be speaking later at training camp. He's known for saying, he'll probably say it, so I'm like rooting his, his punchline here. But uh, one of the things he says is that what makes an effective, su like supportive tech ecosystem is not who did I meet, not who did I meet at this networking event, but rather who did I connect at this networking event. So once the community gets to this point where people know each other to the point where people are thinking about how can I be facilitating connections, that's when you start to see really effective rising tide raising all ships. So that's one example of a, a type of way that you can add value right away as you're meeting people and you're like, oh man, I just met a guy that could, you know, so as you start meeting people. Can you think of other examples of... Well, I push back a little bit in the sense of, I think even, even a person in college can build like, you know, a club, like the hackathon club or like you can find other entrepreneurs and then connect them to be... Like I always think you can create your own little asset, whatever niche you're in. And, and help people solve the problem. I just gave really biased advice because I happen to be good at connecting people. Yeah. So that, that's a really good point. Whatever you are good at. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's a really but, fair point. And I think, but yeah, I think connecting people is awesome. I think it comes from the spirit of just like asking people what they're working on, what, what their challenges are. And if you do it enough, you'll sort of build a database of people who can help each other and then, um, and then making it happen. Cool. Diving in really quick about, so like simultaneous, so while you were doing, Product hunt, I think, if I'm if I have my timeline yeah. correct, you started doing the dinner series. Yeah. You started doing the the competition. Yep. Sorry, I'm forgetting the names. But so like you you were very actively positioning yourself. You were leveraging the network that you were building yep. at Product Hunt 
and you were very actively positioning yourself in a way that it was building yeah. value for you in a longer term sense. Totally. Could you talk through quickly how how you yeah. were thinking about that? So, or how you still totally. think about and, that? and even without product, like Wrapped wasn't an asset, but I did, you know, have connect entrepreneurs to VCs. I, I was hosting a, brunches, dinners, lunch, like just bringing people together, and I really enjoyed it. And when Product Hunt then became this asset that brought traffic to people, and so I I did a few things. One is I started a podcast, and I invited all of my heroes to to or people I really admired to to speak on it, and my, I asked them like, you know. How did you become you? And in the background, I was thinking like, do I want to become you? You know, that sort of thing. And so I think starting a podcast is a great way to, 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 to meet people. And it doesn't have to be super high profile people, but could be anybody, you know. And you have a podcast. Plug your podcast. <laughs> Returning citizen. <laughs> My podcast is a little bit different, but I, I, we're focusing on creating positive role models for folks transitioning out of prison. That's called the Returning Citizen. Yeah. And I actually love a different type of network. Yeah, but I love niche podcasts that like tell a different type of story. That's super interesting. So podcast was one example. I then which which real quick actually to speak on this, it it has been unbelievable when you're doing something that you're passionate about. To Eric's point, just recently I had a conversation with someone from Google for VFA, and we were talking about VFA. And what came out of that conversation was, you know what? Actually, this isn't really a great fit for for training camp. Like it just wasn't like what they were trying to offer. It just wasn't a great fit. But then I kind of casually, the, the conversation shifted to, oh, like, you know, I also do this podcast, blah, blah, blah. And the guy was like, oh, my God, do you know that Google has a civil rights law department? <laughs> like, whatever. I was like, what? No. And it's like this affinity group within Google. And, like, now we are doing a live podcast at Google at their new office at Little Caesar Arena in November. So, like, the energy that you put out in the world can really come back in some unexpected ways, especially when you're doing things that you're passionate about. People like us who are natural, you have a lot of skills and a lot of different things. I, I don't. <laughs> and so I have to build assets and resources. But if you, yeah, totally. <laughs> Some people are amazed. Like the more you are amazing at a skill, whether it's like a functional skill or have a domain knowledge, the more people will seek you out or the more when you go out to seek people, they will respond. And so often the best networking advice, in my opinion, is to be like really amazing at one thing. Try to like, have a lot of value to offer so that when you are at the table, pe people want you to on their team or part of their initiative. Or One of the ones I really wanted to ask you, because I think you embody this as good as anybody that I've ever met. How do you think about you're you're a voracious reader. You you still you write poetry frequently. You take creative expression extremely. You, it's an important part of your life, I believe. Yeah. Uh, how do you think about the interplay between creative exercise outside of work that's not contributing directly to your work and and how it impacts your creativity with business. I would say that the group answer is I don't yeah, I don't know if it does. <laughs> I just I like doing it. I need to do it. I feel good when I do it, so I make time to do it. I would say that freestyle particular has gotten me outside of my comfort zone in a way that is applied to pitching, you know, pitching my business or reaching out to people that I may have been shy to reach out to and I remember not knowing how to, free, or, or even doing spoken word poetry, being afraid to do both of those things and saying to myself, if I did those things, I, I could do anything. So let's touch on, on Village Global quickly. So now you're working fun, as we mentioned, without getting into the, the whole story and background of that, because we don't have enough time. You So first of all, you raised a fund from some big name people without going into too much detail, as we already discussed. Shout out to Reed Hoffman, who's involved in some capacity as a yeah, yeah. investor, it's Reed Hoffman, uh, who's also an early supporter of VFA. So just to give that quick uh, quick plug and shout out. 
So could you just kind of speak to quickly, what are you doing with Village Global? What types of investments are you focusing on? Yeah, sure. So while I was at Product Hunt, I did about 40 investments. And then from there, partnered with three other people and started a $100 million seed fund called Village Global, which is trying to redefine venture through networks. So right now, venture is, you know, it's often five GPs on Sand Hill Road, thinking they're masters of the universe, picking, you know, across sectors. And we said, hey, what if we invested through sort of a decentralized group of angel investors, operators? So instead of five people, it's it's 50 people and they're sort of domain experts in different categories or people in key geographies. And so that's one way we're innovating on networks through venture. The other way is our LP base, tip, LPs of typical funds are pension funds. Yeah, limited partners, people who invest in funds. Uh, we try to get the best CEOs we could get to not only lend their capital and their public brands, but also meet with our entrepreneurs a couple times a year and, and you know expose their resources to them. There's a book called Venture Deals that I really highly recommend everyone reading, especially if you're joining a really small company. It's a very quick overview of a lot of the terminology, a lot of the jargon uh, that's used in the industry and, and a really strong recommendation. Do you agree? Yeah. <laughs> I, so last question, and then I want to dive into Q&A. Uh, so the fellows are going to be learning how to pitch in week four. So they're going to be developing an MVP in week three, and they're going to be pitching it to a group of uh, that includes investors uh, in the judging panel. What high-level advice do you have for folks they as they think about pitching? And just as a fun bonus, what is the most just ridiculous thing that someone's ever pitched you? Well, let me stall on that one. The I think you want to be able to explain literally what your idea is in like 10 to 15 seconds. And a lot of people will keep talking with like, first explain what the idea actually is. Not, not sort of grandiose language, just you say something in 10 to 15 seconds and the other person knows what your idea is. That's pretty hard for people. The other thing I would say is that I think uh, as an investor first, I'm thinking about, and you know, different investors have different return profiles, but as a venture investor, I think about, can this be what's known as venture backable? Can this be a billion dollar company and produce venture returns? So I think first you want to speak to, or early on, you want to speak to like how big the market is. And once I've checked, okay, this is a big enough opportunity, then I'm thinking, okay, are they, the, can they do it? Or how can they do it? But before they, check that box out off. That's still what I'm focused on. And then in terms of the how can they how can the team do it, you want to say some combination of we figured out a unique insight, have some secret or insight slash we are uniquely situated to do it because of our domain expertise or our unique resource or something that is hard for other people to do. And then, you know, here's how we're, here's a go to market. Here's how we're going to get customers or here's how many customers we already have. And they've proven that they want it. I, I think Mark Andreessen had this metaphor of like, sort of like an onion, like peeling back layers of risk. Like there's like market risk. Then there's like team risk. Then there's, you know, go to market risk, product risk. And you want to, in your pitch, like answer, like anticipate all of their questions and then answer them uh, prematurely. And I'd be happy to hear anyone's pitch. Most ridiculous. Yo, the the app Yo, they pitched you. Uh, oh, I you're just saying the most ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> I love Yo, but you yeah. guys remember Yo? Was that was a very short lived? Uh, <laughs> I won't get into it. Uh, <laughs> so with that, I, I would love to open it up to some quick Q and A. They don't have any questions. The question is: Given Eric's well rounded experience, are there any general tips for folks that are starting out their careers as entrepreneurs? Ask us that question. I'll answer them. And the second question, like after the Q&A is over, can we hear some bars? <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't tempt them. Don't, yeah. <laughs> we'll get a circle going over there. You'll wrap too. Gotta wait till Friday. <laughs> yeah, I think it's like 
you either Larry Page used to say something like, like founder of Google used to say like you're either changing the world or you're not like and I think the way of like you're either like building some sort of asset or you're not and I think the asset can be a skill or a knowledge base or a group of skills or a or some actual asset that you own and can leverage for for another thing and I'm happy to jam offline of you know like strategizing in terms of which is which but yeah working to learn taking more risk if if there's high upside and putting yourself in the environment to to learn the most and whether that's a different team a different city a different area within the city i think not being afraid to to cut things short if it's if it's not the thing and and people care way too much about what other people optics about what other people will think like oh i shouldn't take this cuz People are going to think I job hunt. Like, no one cares. Like, I think. <laughs> Just to add quickly to that, I my worst job that I ever had, I toughed it out for a year and a quarter. Best decision. Like, I could have left after three months. Like, I knew that it was going to be, that it was not going to be a good experience. And I cannot tell you how valuable that decision was. I, I was, I, with that experience, I learned how not to manage people. I learned how not to treat people, how to, how to more effectively source ideas, et cetera. Like, right here, man. <laughs> <laughs> but in all sense, I, I can't, I, so I started working for Max immediately after that and was able to step into that experience way farther along than I had been before my worst job ever. So I think like undoubtedly a certain percentage of you, I'm sorry to say, are not going to like your first job. It's just a fact. Um, no matter how <laughs> well we vet them through the match process, it's just a fact of life. So I encourage everybody, <laughs> I encourage everybody to really think about uh, when you're in that experience, no matter what, what, to Derek's point, what, what am I getting out of this experience and how can I maximize this experience no matter what the immediate moment is? Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. And I also think, I'm glad you, you mentioned that because I, I think the highlights some of the differences and that there are multiple ways to be successful. I think the other thing I would say is a lot of people say things like, oh, I'm going to do this for two years and then I'm going to do what I really want to do. Fuck that. <laughs> Personally, I think just like you want to start a company, you want to be busy, you want to do that, whatever you want to do. I think often the best way of going about it is to try it or, or do it as directly as possible. And I think that's just sort of what consultants or like will tell you to get you to hire them or something. But also recognizing that starting something without first having the experience of working for it. So this is part of the what why we do Venture for America the way we do, why you're working for a company for at least two years. Starting a business, and I can say this from experience, so can Eric, starting a business before you have the benefit of working for someone else means that you're taking on a ton of additional risk while not having that experience. So essentially if I went back and did my exact business, having the experience that I have now, we reinvented so many wheels and did so many things that were so blatantly stupid, but it was because I was learning as I went. So con contrasting that with working for someone else and, and learning when it's like somebody else's like risk and reputation on the line, for lack of a better way to explain that. But in all seriousness, like you're, you have, it's, it's a much lower risk for you. You're able to learn arguably just as much and then you can, Launch your own thing immediately after. Point, counterpoint. It's good. <laughs> the question is, if for somebody who is starting your job at a VC, is that... So for somebody who's who's starting at a VC or another type of, of company that's not a startup in their VFA opportunity, given the experience you're having now, what do you think? How does that yeah. help jumpstart your career? Then? I think I would be pretty intellectually honest with what... And sometimes you don't always know, but like, what, what are the things you think you need to learn in order to be comfortable taking 
starting that company. And sometimes it's, I just need to make enough money or I need to do X, Y, Z personally before I, I feel comfortable doing it. But making that list and then making a plan to, to get those things while you're at your, your job. And, and maybe it's, I would also be honest with whoever you're working for in terms of like, this is my goal. You know, what do you, what do you boss think that I should be learning or pursuing in order to be able to start a company? I want to add one to that, and I'm curious to hear your take on this. So in Originals, did you read Originals? Adam uh, Grant? Yeah. So in Adam Grant's Originals, he highlights the Warby Parker co-founders as well as a few other companies, and he points out that this idea of like Mark Zuckerberg dropping out of Harvard, like like quitting your job and diving in headfirst into a company, that gets kind of glamorized when you think about the like successful entrepreneurs. But in reality, you are taking on quite a bit of additional external risk when suddenly you don't have an income. So there actually is a, a benefit to starting to think through the initial steps of starting a business while you have an income because you're, you don't have that external pressure of, oh shit, I have to pay my rent. That, you know, it has nothing to do with your business. It's just like your personal, do you, do you agree with that one where it's like, when you, if you guys talk to an entrepreneur, are you expecting that they've already quit their everything and and are are already or or is it that they have the plan to both i think i run on deck which is community for people looking to do the next thing so i often talk to people early so that we can get the first look but we want to invest in people who are investing like who aren't building the company contingent on us investing in them if that makes sense but yet i think it's a great point is start the company on the side like you have a job you know start testing the idea. I think what's so great about starting a company is you get instant feedback right away and you have to respond. Whereas at a job, you can sort of convince yourself like, oh, I'm, I'm learning. Like I'm doing so much. Whereas, and so you have to create, and that's not to say that you can't learn a ton, but you just have to create those deadlines and barriers for yourself. And so part, like get a co-founder or get a you know, teammate and like build ideas, test them, advise your friends' companies, like Put yourself on the line and give yourself like, you know, week, two week deadlines where you can, you know, MVP ideas. Ellen, who spoke to you guys earlier, I think a lot of you were in that session. Ellen's like the perfect example of someone who's like, Harriet is like something that she's slowly building as she has other reliable sources of income and she's like starting to get traction. And it's like a really exciting thing, but by no means did she just like have this great idea and just like quit everything. Like she's, She's also like getting her masseuse license. I don't know if she I wasn't in the session, but uh, she's she's like doing a bunch of, you know, re, like she's thinking about it in kind of this more holistic way where she has alternative income, which reduces the pressure on her initially starting that business. And I would actually, I want to start or I want someone to start an on-deck chapter in Detroit where people can just, you know, meet biweekly or monthly to jam on ideas and keep each other accountable and, and start things. We should talk about it. The question is, given the fact that Eric has both started a business in Detroit and also has experienced what it's like to work on a startup in San Francisco, can startups, <laughs> do, do, do you believe in the VFA model? No, just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> I, no like, wait, I, how do you think about kind of this idea of rise of the rest and startups be that different regions have different specialties? And can... I love it. I love it. I mean, move to San Francisco, but I love it. I'm, I'm just kidding. I, I think you can start it anywhere. I think actually it's tough sometimes to scale. It was tough for us to get Series A capital. It's tough to really scale out a team. Now Detroit is a very different place in 2012 and 13 than it is in 2018. So is the investment landscape yeah, broadly. Totally. Yeah. So I think it's getting easier and easier. And like I think with in, in sort of if you're doing anything in blockchain or crypto, I think San Francisco actually ha doesn't have a native advantage. But I think at the same 
it, the two things can be true. I think it's getting easier and easier to start a company here. I also think it's getting better and better to start a company in San Francisco. So I think you can be <laughs> successful in either way. Somewhat rhetorical question. Do Does Village Global only invest in companies no, no, no. that are in Village the Bay? Global. A third of our companies outside of San Francisco, or sorry, outside the US. And yeah, we're, I would love to invest in a Detroit company. Hence the global. I yeah, guess. yeah. And because it's cheaper and there's opportunity and you know, it's less competitive. Yeah, opportunities everywhere. Okay. I got one coming before I ask a question. Uh, you sure? Is that Chester Yes. Okay, I'm from Chicago. Amazing. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> Jacob introduced me to Chance the Rapper. He's the hip hop historian. I did. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And then my question is, how do you gauge when it's time to pivot towards another business or a project versus taking it out with your current uh, endeavor? Right. I think you kind of touched on it yeah. earlier. Uh, wishing you would have you know, stopped ahead of time when you know that the uh, business that you had would, would not be successful, but. How do you engage when it's time to, to pivot into something? I think a broad point is I think you want people who you are accountable to, whether it's a mentor, whether it's like a personal board, whether it's an actual board, and you want to email them like every week or every two weeks or every month with an update on how things are going. And I think it, it encourages you to be really honest. And I think a few things. One, it, like we were emailing them with like, it's not working, it's not working, it's not working. Like over time, you sort of get the hint and you sort of either lose confidence or say, oh, it could actually work if we do this. So I think bang your head against the wall until you just think there's something else that, that you could be doing. And I think you want to ask those men, like, have I given this a good shot? You know, ask those other people who are, are with you on the project. But ultimately, I think one reason to potentially keep doing it is if you have, even if it's a small amount of people, but someone loves what you're doing. If a, someone or a small amount of people think what you're doing, like they're a user or a customer and they think what you're doing is amazing. Maybe there's a chance to figure it out. But if you have, if you share it with a bunch of people and everyone sort of thinks it's okay. And, and to, for folks that may not have like studied like startups as much in the room, like many of the most successful companies that you can think of started doing something different and pivoted or pivoted five times. Pivoting is a common thing for, for companies to do. Tarek's point earlier, there's a certain amount of luck involved in, in success and playing out different channels and, and feeling those things out to, to be seeking out creating something that people love. Yeah. Right. That's like, yeah. And, and, and this company TBH, it just sold to Facebook for a hundred million dollars. It had 16 different product iterations over six years. Wow. Yeah. 16 totally different launches names. And so they just were, were rigorous. They, they banged their hand against the wall. They had sort of people who gave them feedback. The market gave them feedback and they pivoted until they found early signs. Instagram was a pivot. Pinterest was a pivot. Like, on and on and on. That's crazy. You want to pick one? So I'm a big fan of product hunt. Like I arguably spend like 5% of my time on it. And like Woo! most of my favorite tools are usually found in product hunt. So like, let's say you're in a, you're in a room with Ryan Hoover. Like you're employee number one, right? Like, a lot of people, I mean, it was a side project back then, but he cares a lot about this. This is his baby. Yeah, yeah. You have to convince him to become, like, you have to become a co-parent in this company. Right. right? That's his child. Yes. How, how do you prove that value in that in that meeting or the subsequent meetings? As a first employee of a business, you're joining a team with someone who's undoubtedly super passionate about what they're doing. How do you how do you hit the ground running in that scenario? Yeah, well, I actually think to your point a little bit earlier, being an early employee, you can get the best of both worlds a little bit in that you learn a ton, but you can get a salary sometimes if they if they raise money. So being an early employee at a startup is a is an amazing opportunity to, to learn a ton. But the question was, how do you prove value? A couple things. 
One is having a low ego about uh, about title, about compensation, about just and showing that you're going to provide value, not by what you say, but what, what you do. And so I was in, I remember I was in Detroit, just moved back from 500 startups. And I called him and I said, hey, let me volunteer help for you for free. And he was like, can you start Monday? And it was Friday. And I said, yes. And then I, I, I just flew there and he paid me from, from day one. And my title was hustling, hustling at Product Hunt. And for months, you know, at first I was doing a lot of like customer support, just really just doing anything that needed to be done. Cause at startups, there's a lot of people sort of question like, Hey, it's, this is like a five person company. Will I have the role I want? There's so much to do at an early stage startup, both low level and high level. So when it was just doing what needed to be done so that he would then trust me with more activities. And then it was like marketing or business development or some like external community facing stuff that I just sort of took on. Hopefully, as a business owner or like the folks that, you know, the idea is that you're hiring people that are smarter than you in a given area or way better at something than you are. So if somebody is an effective leader, hopefully they would be recognizing that they're bringing you onto the team to be better at the thing that they hired you for or else they wouldn't be hiring you. Yeah. Just speaking of that, that humbling piece, because you ignored my question before and I'm going to harp on it. What is a startup hostel? Oh, <laughs> oh a startup hostel yeah, is <laughs> Eric was living in a startup hostel when he moved to San Francisco to work for Panica. <laughs> yeah, a- so basically, you know, bunk bed situation, <laughs> thirty bunk beds in a room. Yeah, it was unglamorous, but uh, <laughs> the most Silicon Valley thing I can yeah, think of. Needed a place to live and needed it on the cheap, and it was actually like five times more expensive than my Detroit loft. <laughs> was sick, and so, back when rent downtown was cheap. Yeah, doing whatever is it not cheap anymore? No, <laughs> doing whatever it took to. To make it. Let's do so we're over time, so maybe one more question. Okay. I mean I'll stay here as long as you want. Yeah, if you guys want to stay. Hey thanks for coming. My name's Jackson. You guys kind of glossed over this a little bit, but you talked about how you reached out to your heroes to bring them onto your podcast. I was wondering if you could walk through a few examples of how you got like a Tim Ferris or a Chris Saka to come through. So the question was Eric mentioned that on his podcast he got some of his heroes to speak. So how how did he go about getting in touch with and convincing someone like a Tim Ferriss or whoever the case may be to come on the podcast. And that's the value of having an asset is like, Hey, Tim Ferriss, you're about to launch your YouTube show. Do you want us to feature you? Yes. Come on this. So come on this podcast. But even before that, it's like, Hey, Chris Saka, you're investing in, you know, these, these, these types of startups. Here's one that I think you might be interested in. Oh, you're not interested. No pressure. I'll send you another one later. There's this one, there's a Forbes story about this, like 15 year old kid somewhere in Europe who made lowercase, which is Chris Hawkins venture firm. Chris Hawkins is a very famous investor. He made a jobs board for all of lowercase's companies, which allowed anybody to see what jobs were open at one of his companies, which was so valuable for him. He didn't ask for it. It was totally unsolicited. He just sent it to him, and then he ended up hiring him to work at his venture firm. And then he left and I think started a company that he later funded. So this concept of like finding ways to add value. Like if I was Chris Hawkins, what's something I might like that would help my help my job in some way, and then just doing it. The question is, how, how do you mitigate risk as it relates to playing the timing of a market? Eric had mentioned that it was unfortunate that the technology hadn't been built yet from a video technology standpoint with RaptFM, for example. How, how do you try to play the timing of a startup? That's just a story I tell myself. RaptFM was a dumbass idea. <laughs> <laughs> had no chance of succeeding at any time. Just kidding. It's a great idea. Great idea. We're bringing it back. It's a great question. I don't think you really want to think about, I mean, timing that much because, so 
But it goes to speak that there are a lot of ideas that were considered dumb at one point. You know, Pets.com in 1998. There was another one, Webvan, which is like Instacart 20 years ago. They were considered horrible ideas at the time. 20 years later, they both are, you know, in different iterations are worth multi-billion dollar companies. And even Yo, which is an app we were making fun of, I think at some point will be worth, that idea will be worth a lot of money. I think it's just, it's less timing and more just testing do customers, one, can this be built? And two, it can scale. And then do customers want this? And trying without building technology, just whether it's doing surveys or doing like whatever minimal viable product you can put out there to see if if this will resonate with some group. I wouldn't overthink the, the timing part too much. And only to say that you want to be doing things that other people aren't doing. If it's too competitive, it's it's pretty hard. So you want to do things that other people think it's bad time, if that makes sense. You also, you hit the head on the nail that I think lean, start, lean startups are like iterating quickly, you know, like testing, not investing a ton into something before testing the market. So that that is the concept behind, behind lean startup methodology, which is like, how, what is the fastest way, you, what is the leanest way that you can bring an idea to market in a way that is meaningful and you can get real time feedback as opposed to like, you know, all these examples of technologies where they invest a hundred million dollars into a top secret technology and then see if customers like it. And it's like, doesn't make any sense. All right. Maybe like two more questions because we should let you go to, go to bed. So the question is like regarding what we had mentioned around like the the elevated sense of self concept, like meaning how, life, purpose. <laughs> <laughs> no, but just like uh, thinking about not not tying your identity directly to what you're currently doing. What was the last part of the question? Yeah, I think for me, for for me, it's been really empowering to like at, at this point to be able to kind of step back and be like. Who am I? It's not like I'm the director of Detroit Adventure for America. It's like I'm a connector and a mobilizer in Detroit, you know, in Detroit, who's, you know, a, a community builder. Like I'm thinking about like my identity in kind of a higher level sense. And it really helps me channel when I'm looking for my next opportunity after Castle. I'm thinking, well, I'm, I'm a people connector and I'm a mobilizer, you know, and I want to, I want to be helping people fall in love with Detroit. Like those are, that's my thing. And it's not like I'm the guy at Castle. It's like I'm I'm the community builder guy. And I'm looking at opportunities that help me kind of build on on that. So in terms of reflecting, I mean, I, I just kind of encourage everybody to not, from an identity standpoint, to not treat your, your current project as who you are, but rather as this really exciting thing that is, is you know, your focus. Again, I don't know if it's possible to, to do that. Until you've experienced it, honestly, I, I don't know if I could have. If somebody had given me that advice, I'm not sure if it would have been useful until I experienced it myself. The one thing I'll say about that for me is that having an enlightened sense of self, putting air quotes, is having much less of a sense of self. Really, just focusing like about serving other people and how I can make contribution that way, but less like about who I am. Also, just like that concept of like, if you heaven forbid it doesn't work out, it's okay. Like it's it's totally okay. There was a point where Wrapped FM was Eric's whole identity. It didn't work out the way he thought it was going to. It, it built a foundation for him. It, if he, if, if Wrapped FM had kind of been working, maybe he never would have moved to San Francisco and joined Product Hunt and wouldn't be running a $100 million fund. Given your experience as an investor, are there, is there something specific that you would see that immediately you know it's a bad, bad move or something that you immediately see that, that makes you feel really good that it's a good move? While I'm stalling, let's let the other two people just ask the question and then I'll answer them all at once. Oh, wow. Rapid fire round. Let's hear the other questions. Okay. Let me answer a question very quickly. Yeah. 
So things that are unfundable don't have a good market size or don't have a unique go-to-market or unique solve uh, and aren't defensible through some combination of network effects or proprietary data or something that they can could capture. I can't capture the value. Your question was about social venture. Social how, do you, venture. how do you apply that thinking to social venture? We don't really. Uh, we're a venture capital firm. Our LPs are often philanthropic. So when we make money, charities make money. So first and foremost, can this be an enormous business? Can it, and being an enormous business creates a lot of value for, for people. If that's in energy, that's amazing. We don't do, you know, certain things that we think actively don't make the world a better place. So that's, that's what we think about. I'd be happy to talk to you about it later. When you're evaluating a business, how does the, how do you think about if the team is capable? Teams have often been working on this for, you know, months, if not a couple of years. So what have they learned over time and what's their speed of learning to, to figure things out? Are they hitting the same problem for two years? Or are they rigorously doing like two months sprints where they're, you know, building, testing, iterating, you know, sense for it. And the last one was about venture backable startups, which got to have an enormous market size. Are there other companies in the space that have been over a billion dollars? We could talk offline. Everybody give it up for Eric, all the way from San Francisco. Thank you. And also for the VFA team members in the back who are here after hours. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.